Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I am your producer and today I am your substitute host, Jade Isiri Ramos. Before we get started, I just want to say that today's show is pre-recorded, which means we will not be taking live calls during the hour. Today is also a very exciting day because for the first time ever, I'm co-hosting with my spouse. Hi, Alex. Hi, Jade. How's it going? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Are you excited for today's show? I am. Yeah, you you actually um, brought this book to me, which honestly, when we get to the title of the book, it's going to sound a little bit <laughs> more heavy than it is. But you said, hey, I, I saw this book and I think we should talk to the authors on a public affair. Um, so let's let's get into it. Um, today, we are talking with the authors of a new book titled Baby Making for Everybody. Their book is a how-to guide for LGBTQ plus and solo prospective parents. It covers everything from fertility tracking, legal considerations, choosing a donor or surrogate, and everything in between and beyond. They do this all while considering the unique barriers that queer and solo parents can face in their conception journey. The book is written by Ray Ratchlin and Maria Goodman. Ray Ratchlin is a licensed midwife and founder of Refuge Midwifery in New Jersey. She is a member of the Queer and Transgender Midwives Association and earned their BS in midwifery at Birthing Way College of Midwifery. They live with their family in West Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us, Ray. Thank you so much for having us. And then uh, Ray's co-writer, co-author, is Maria Goodman, a licensed midwife, writer, and founder of Restore Midwifery in Santa Cruz County, California. She earned her midwifery degree from the National Midwifery Institute. She lives with her family in Santa Cruz. Uh, Hi, Maria. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, So my first question for you about this book is... Can you tell our, our audience how you met? Like, how did you guys come together and make this this book happen? I'm always the one to do this. Okay. So, um, so Maria and I met on Instagram. Um, I think at the time that we connected in 2020, there was still, like, just a handful of, like, out queer home birth midwives um so we all kind of know each other a little bit um, via social media and i um had co-started a queer conception blog um with um adula uh, jb brown the same month that maria was starting a conception stories like anthology project and so maria put together pretty quickly that we were basically doing the same project of like just trying to like assist like queer people non-traditional families and like showing each other like how how we create families and Maria's like we should do this together and I was like yeah absolutely we're doing the same thing on different coasts um so we started a team up to create an anthology together and at some point one of us was like you know we probably should put a few informational chapters in about how how to get pregnant since we help people get pregnant um through IUI all the time and so we're you know working on the book proposal you know, we're like going to have a mostly anthology with a little bit of informational stories. And then we got some guidance that basically you can't have both when it comes to book publishing. You either publish an anthology or you publish a how-to guide. And at that point, we had been working together for a few months. And we're like, you know, like, let's just write a how-to guide. Like, how hard could it be? And, you know. <laughs> how hard was it? Um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I feel like it just became more work the more you did it because initially because like we both do like conception counseling and I and like um clinic or home IUI so like in the beginning it felt like we we're just like providing midwifery care via writing to you know the community of people that are trying to create families but um the skills of like providing midwifery care and writing a book are two very different things and um it was a big crash course in how to actually be authors mm-hmm. and write a book and fill in all the gaps that we don't talk about in appointments. So 
it was it was an insane amount of work. I can't believe we did that. <laughs> <laughs> While also having like full midwifery practices and also both of us having babies during the process. Yeah, like like literally having babies, right? Not just yes. raising babies, but having babies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the writing of the book very much coincided with Ray and my personal conception journeys as well. Um, that's it's so interesting to hear that this started as an anthology because those um, I, I love the little stories that are peppered throughout, you know, to give a little bit of like human face to this like your book is in no way clinical, but, you know, the process can feel clinical um, to give like a real like human emotions, give real um, you know, thoughts that people felt uh, from their own perspective. Funny to see that that was like that was what you started out with. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think. Go for it, Maria. Um, you know, as midwives, we're like, we're very relationship-based healthcare professionals. And I think that personally, like that's that's how I want to receive healthcare. And I think especially when we're talking about something as intimate as family building. And when you're a queer family or a solo parent, there there can be, there's a lot of logistics, there are a lot of steps. There are a lot of fertility clinics talking about this sort of stuff in in a not very like personal and approachable way. And so it was really important to me and I think both of us to um, establish like this the the vibe of being a non-hierarchical healthcare provider with our readers. And like that's very much deep in our midwifery practices and in the philosophy of midwifery in general. Um, we really see it as it's our role to offer the information that we have so that people can feel empowered and know their choices and make whatever decision is right for them. And so we really tried to like bring that spirit with us in writing the book. Yeah. Can you um, maybe, well, since Maria, you're, you're talking right now, uh, can you share with us like your, your path into midwifery um, and then specifically into helping, you know, queer and, and solo parents uh, become parents? Yeah, um, I was really lucky. I feel like midwifery sort of found me. Um, I didn't know that being a, an out-of-hospital midwife was something that I could do um, until I had a friend my senior year of college who um, had a home birth and she invited me to her birth as her doula. And it was like, um, it was just kind of one of those moments where like everything clicked and I was like, oh yeah, this is amazing. Um, and her midwife actually a couple years later after I'd graduated and I'd worked at a local birth center for a little while doing like admin work, she ended up being my first midwifery preceptor. Um, so what's, I got into midwifery. Oh, a preceptor is just like a, a midwifery teacher. So it's an apprenticeship based program. Cool. Um, so, so we apprentice with, with licensed midwives and then that's how you learn, um, the skill and the, the trade of midwifery. Um, yeah. So then I, I went to a three-year midwifery program, got licensed and just, um, as a queer person started working with queer people and then, um, learning from other queer midwives. One of, one of them was, um, my partner at the time, taught me IUI um, and her name's Andrea Ruizquez. I, I co-parent three awesome kids with her. And um, I I was lucky to like to learn from the midwives who had been doing that. And just kind of um, because I'm part of the community, I started meeting people and, um, you know, providing more of this, this support. And um, the, at the time there, and there still aren't a ton of of midwives who are like, I'm queer and I work with the queer community. And so I feel, I feel lucky that I like have the privilege and safety to be able to be out like that. And it's mm -hmm. really been awesome for me um, to be able to, to work with my own community. Yeah. Ray, what about you? So my path was a little bit less linear. I like, I started off as a union organizer. And then when I was like, this isn't fulfilling my like ways of creating change in the world. I want to learn how to support people. So I signed up for a doula training, you know, being like 21 and gay and like knowing nothing about how, like pregnancy or childbirth or how babies were made, you know. Um, and doula training was life changing for me. And and then I started attending births as a doula and then going to my first home birth was life changing. And that 
I just saw that birth looked completely different when the care provider worked around the needs of the person in labor instead of the person in labor having to work around the needs of like the system and care uh, of the care providers. And I was like, oh, I'm doing the wrong job. Mm. And so it took a couple of years. And then I, I'm from New York originally, and I moved across the country to Oregon to train as an out-of-hospital midwife. So I also went to a three-year school and then also ended my training through apprenticeship at a birth center. And you know, like being queer was not enough. Like I really was so fortunate to like become a competent care provider. I was just so fortunate that there was like a couple of like queer midwives and like students who were like a little bit ahead of me that showed me what it meant to like Mm. create care that was centered around our community's needs. And I did a little bit of my apprenticeship training with um, a naturopath uh, midwife who primarily did trans care. And that led me into doing my independent study and then my thesis on helping trans people like get off hormones to uh, regain fertility to use their sperm and eggs and then teamed up with another midwife, Jackson Darlin, to teach about trans competency in the childbearing year um, kind of to midwives and health professionals throughout the country. So by the time I relocated back to the East Coast um, to move to Philly in 2017, um, I had been doing kind of queer-centered and trans-centered midwifery and fertility care for a little while and opened up a practice that was centered around meeting the needs of my community, which at the time felt really scary because the only out queer midwives I knew were in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really scared about losing work um, for being out. And also my partner was very clear with me that um, straight people have every service is tailored to their needs and if we want to serve our community we need to be explicit and straight people will still hire you Mm. i was like okay and you know now six years later it's like i have a practice that for birth is you know majority heterosexual but then also have a you know queer centered fertility practice which is lovely your your practice and your research you talked about looking at hormone therapy and and um how that relates to fertility. Um, I thought that was a really interesting chapter in the book. It's definitely relevant to me personally. And I like that you, you know, include that in there. Can you talk a little bit about some of the like myths in that area you spend some time like dispelling, like that people may have heard um, as part of their, their transition and in, in these um, maybe less, uh, these more traditional healthcare spaces? Sure. I mean, I think a part of like the WPATH, so the World Professional Association for Trans Health, like informed consent for hormone therapy has been that if you're choosing to utilize gender affirming hormones, that you are giving up fertility, um, for lack of a better term. And that has been like since hormone therapy came about has been the line. And the answer is more nuanced than that because we don't know because we haven't studied it. Um, And so what, since our community doesn't have a lot of research available to us, what we are kind of seeing is like little bits and pieces of both community knowledge and experience around trying to use fertility, um, as well as little like pieces of studies and information showing that the picture is a little bit more complex and that probably for people who are, you know, assigned female at birth and utilizing testosterone therapy, we're not seeing permanent effects like we do see like we do have higher rates of infertility generally in the population and also we do believe that fertility generally declines with age so we see those things in the population but we can't actually say that testosterone therapy decreases your fertility permanently if you stop tea like we don't actually know that and what we're seeing in community is a lot of people going off tea and successfully using their eggs to conceive a pregnancy and either grow it in their body or in somebody else's. Mm -hmm. When it comes to trans feminine people, so people who maybe are assigned male at birth and um, utilized estrogen um, and spirolactone or other um, androgen blockers, it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, I think there's some evidence that um, there's permanent damage to the lighting cells in the testes, and there's other people who don't experience that damage and are able to go on to utilize their sperm and who is going to experience that is unclear as well. So it's just a place where we don't have a ton of data, but some people are successful and others are not. Talking about that section of your book, talking about how becoming a parent 
can look very different for different trans people. You also were really explicit in saying like you might have big feelings and this might really impact you mentally in this way and including, you know, experiences both of like uncomfortable situations, but also like, you know, it was really also affirming for, you know, a a feminine trans person to say like my baby could like, um, you know, comfort nurse off of me. And that was really affirming for my gender. Um, What was the, I guess, why did you choose to include not just like the medical medical parts, but also that part of of, um, becoming a parent? What a great question. I think we we didn't even really consider not because it's just, um, you know, we start the whole book by before kind of diving into choosing a donor and the different insemination methods and all your different choices and the logistics. We, we start the whole book of like, why? Why do you want to become a parent? Like get clear on your why, like, let's talk about it. Let's talk about like childhood trauma and like climate change. And, um, you know, it's like, I, I don't believe that we can separate ourselves from these like emotional and, and psychological experiences. And um, yeah, we are very clear, especially in, in the chapter about trans fertility that, um, you know, it's not just about the logistics of going off of hormones and how long and what the chances are, you know, the statistics that we have that are limited, but it's also like, what are you taking on for your mental and emotional health? And is that something that makes sense for you? And is that something that you feel clear that you're like ready to do because you want to pursue this potential biological connection or are there other paths that might be more accessible? And um, yeah, we really try to support people in all the ways. Yeah, I think specifically in that section, you were also like, if you wanted to take as little time as possible, here are some of your options, which I thought was also like a really practical, just um, a, a, a good, a good move. Um, if you are just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair. I am your co- your co-host, Jada Siri Ramos, here with my co-host and husband, Alex. And he is helping me interview the authors of a new book, Baby Making for Everybody, Family Building and Fertility for LGBTQ Plus and Solo Parents. Uh, they are Maria Goodman and Ray Ratchlin. Um uh, Maria, you were just talking about how you start the book with the why, which I thought was like, it was like revolutionary, right? To have like a book start like, okay, you pick this book up, but are you sure? And like, can you get on the same page with your partner about that? Um, I thought, or or yourself, I guess, if you are a solo parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think throughout the book, you utilize like questions, you utilize um you know, different different ways to get people thinking about that. Was there a gap that you were seeing in other literature and other sources um, that, you know, made you want to include that sort of thing in this book? I mean, there's a gap in literature generally on how to build families. So, you know, there is only one other book that's been printed in the last 15 years um, geared towards helping queer people create mm-hmm. families. So huge gap. And then I think something that I really experience in my own practice, um, and like I also do a lot of community building events for just people in Philadelphia who are trying to have babies and are like, how do you do it if you don't have sperm in your life? Um, Is that you get really bogged down with the details. Mm -hmm. The money feels really overwhelming. The tracking feels really overwhelming a lot of times people land up in an infertility clinic setting and then are suddenly like in this very medicalized process that, you know, may or may not feel congruent to like how they experience their body. But it kind of, you go from this ideal of like, I want to have a baby to these like very intense logistical decision makings that feel really overwhelming and isolating. And I think in trying to create space for the why is like, you know, when you find these moments that are overwhelming, like how do you come back to your center? Um, If you have decision-making that feels complex or confusing, like what is the principles that are guiding you as a person or you as a family? And that there's no one right way to do this. Like um, 
you know, single parents and LGBTQ people have been making families forever and have been navigating complex systems that aren't designed for us from the get-go. And I think we want to like help people feel more resourced emotionally in that process of like, if you're making decisions, like where are you making that, those decisions from versus feeling maybe bamboozled or overwhelmed or like there's often a place of like starting like the process with a sense of scarcity and a feeling of infertility just because of how everything is designed. So it's a place of like, how do we find connection and like our own resourcefulness while pursuing parenthood? Ray, I really like what you just said too about um, this this scarcity mindset. You sort of like counter that in the book specifically about um, talking about solo parents and LGBTQ plus parents. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, sort of this this the advantage that comes the the advantage that comes for children that come um, out of this this type of planning. Yeah, we do try to counter that a little bit. And, you know, I think we say we say something to the effect of um, we understand that it's really annoying to have to go through this whole process and figure out all the steps and pay the money if, you know, depending on the route that you're doing. And um, it feels like oppression to like need to go through all of these hoops. Um, And on the other hand, there is something like powerful and wonderful about needing to bring so much intention into creating a person or creating a family, whatever route you go about doing that. And I think, um, I think it matters. I think it matters to the kids and it matters to our families and like, um, see, you know, um, no, no shade on anyone who has accidental pregnancies. Um, but I do think it's a compelling statistic that 50% of, um, babies conceived in the U S are unintentional pregnancies. And, um, as queer and solo parents, we, we need to bring this intention and, and preparation. And I think, um, actually that's like a pretty cool superpower, Yeah. The amount of times Alex and I are like, can you believe that people can just accidentally have a baby? (laughs) (laughs) It's the biggest thing you'll ever do in your life. You know, it's the biggest thing to create a person. And um, and and there's something great about about needing to be really ready to make that happen. I think there there's a. And you kind of lead to it in several parts in the book, but there's also like a creativity that this um, allows you to have, right? Of like, okay, so if it's not going to be, you know, a, a man and a woman love each other very much and then they get married and they have babies, you know, where else can I, I be creative in that? And I um, think that that was a beautiful part of your book as well. Yeah, there's no there's no one right way. There are millions of ways to do this and everybody brings their own selves and you know, there's so many like that's one thing I love about doing events around the book or just just being around queer and solo parent families is like humans are so creative and so resourceful and we'll find ways to to love people and create families. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really liked about the book, too, was the clear intention you had with the language that you used. The, you know, this is the first book that I've ever read um, about fertility. Right. So I'm a little bit skewed in that. And honestly, I feel like what a what a blessing y'all made for me personally that I never had to read a book and do a lot of like, OK, like I'm making mental jumps every like paragraph for parts of this book that don't, don't fit my life. I wonder if you've gotten any other feedback about that specific aspect of your book of not using gendered language when it comes to uh, parents and and to parts and to um, the words that you use in your book. You know, it's just a really routine part of our midwifery practices. Like it turns out it's really easy to use inclusive language and just be inclusive. And, um, And unfortunately, when it comes to preconception, pregnancy, birth, postpartum yeah being inclusive is considered to be revolutionary and it shouldn't be this should just be the norm in all medical like medically focused literature i think uh like building on that um one of my questions was like do you have any you have any recommendations do you have things you tell your clients as they like trans 
traverse these spaces, I guess, with working with you where this inclusivity is built in versus the the traditional hospital system or other things where where they may have to be sort of hyper aware of, of that? We do have sections in the book about how to choose your healthcare provider, and we give a, give templates of like what questions to ask. Here are some suggestions. We also have a lot of other resources for how to find queer and trans affirming providers. Um, I think a big thing that we go back to again and again in the book is like find your people, like get your community, even if you live in a place where there's one fertility clinic and they're really not inclusive, um, inclusively minded, and you have no other choice than to go there, like have somebody with you that sees you and who can give you that that support um you know we both work with people virtually i run an online community for people who are trying to conceive and who are pregnant and um ray does local philly events and like we're very i think community is like um i think queer people understand it but uh, but it's such an underrated like aspect of having good mental health is 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 just having people that see you and can support you i i know you guys live so far away but i was like i gotta find the the ray of the ray or the maria of madison <laughs> and which yeah it, they exist I, right I, I, somewhere i mean i i'll ask on instagram yeah any okay. madison midwives <laughs> Who work with queer and trans folks. Yeah. Do you know anyone, Ray? I know some Twin City people, so I'm mm. sure, like, we can find a referral from there. Because, like, yeah. Like, and actually, as I'm saying this, I'm like, I have interacted with a queer midwife on, in Wisconsin before on Instagram. And I'm like, I can follow up and figure out who that was. But um, because it's becoming safer to be out. Yeah. And so it's easier to find your people. Yeah. And, or the providers that can help just kind of hold your hand and guide you through in a way that where you don't have to explain who you are or translate or, you know, let a part of yourself kind of, yeah, go away to receive care. Um, if you're just tuning in, I am Jada Siri Ramos, and you're listening to a conversation um, between myself and my co-host Alex today. Uh, we're in conversation with Maria Goodman and Ray Ratchlin about their new book, Baby Making for Everybody. Um, it is a how-to guide about family building and fertility for LGBTQ plus and solo parents. This, I feel like this book blew any sex ed that I'd ever had out <laughs> of the water. Like I was like, oh, that's what a cervix is. Like I know, I you know, I knew, but I did it. Yeah. Um, is this is this like? Is this like normal? Like, is this a normal amount of like detail in a fertility book? It should be. Yeah. That's a but, great question. Go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. I mean, honestly, like, um, there is this one like queer fertility Facebook group that like I joined years ago because the process of queer conception makes people so anxious and queer people like want information about their bodies is my experience. And the, the detailed questions that people would ask and the community resourcing of getting those answers were things that like I had no idea as a provider about. So I think like overall, like our community like wants information about our bodies. We want to understand what's going on. We want like to have an active part of decision-making in our health. And so understanding what your cervix looks like and is doing is a part of that, you know, like fertility tracking can like both like help us determine ovulation and also to help us diagnose some infertility mm -hmm. challenges. So, you know, I think we wanted to give people a lot of information so then they could kind of figure out what tools worked right for them. Yeah, I had so much fun working on the section where we walk people through using a speculum. Mm -hmm. And um, that's like one of my favorite parts of writing the book because it just like was so detailed. And I think like to your question, we we don't get a lot of this information and many of us have medical trauma and sexual trauma um, around these sorts of things. And so we just tried to take the approach of like um, understanding the tenderness um, while like setting people up to be empowered to, to be able to absorb the information 
you know what I mean? Like those things go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, you know, we were just speaking about like finding providers, which obviously is an important part of this. Um, but you also talk about like, you know, how can you you know, make the conception process, if this is possible for you, like not as clinical as you might think that it has to be because you're like queer and you don't have all the parts. Um, I I thought that was really, I, I, I mean, I think you've mentioned this, like people can end up in fertility clinics, clinics because they want to have a baby and they haven't, you know, tried any other way, but like their first avenue is IVF. Um, and I thought that that was a really gorgeous part of the book. Speaking of not having the parts, you spend a lot of time talking about like finding sperm or finding eggs or finding um, a surrogate. And it feels, that feels like so hard to me. That feels like the biggest hurdle of like, there's so many things to consider, right? Um, you know, for our specific situation, it's like, okay, if we're going to have a sperm donor, is it someone who we want to who we want to know is it actually easier to not know them what are the like ethics around doing a sperm bank yeah so I, I this brought up so much for me and I was wondering if you could just like talk about that that aspect of like family raising picking the like um the person who's going to provide genetic or or carry your baby yeah so I think this is another place where we wanted to hold space for the fact that there's not one right way to create a family. And there's a lot of, you know, people's own experience as well as what available genetic resources are that go into how to make this decision. And so I think with everything, we tried to start with the least interventive and like move up the chain to most interventive and just kind of hold, you know, what are the pros and cons of each decision, you know? There are pros to a local donor for someone who has sperm in terms of ease. There's pros to, a, you know, a known egg donor, um, both in terms of relationship and also cost. Um, and there are, you know, challenges because it means you know the person you're involving in this process. And there's this fear of like, what if the relationship changes? What if having a baby makes things feel different? What will this look like over time? And, you know, we can't plan for the future in that way. I also like to hold that, like, you know, 50% of heterosexual mm -hmm. marriages end in divorce. So, like, people also make, you know, on the side where everybody, like, all the genetic material is available, people also make these decisions, you know, not knowing that relationships will change. But we're holding that from the get-go. And so I think when you're involved relationally, the you know, there's no guaranteed protection against the future, but there is like ways to have a lot of conversations about decision making and try and like get legal ducks in a row to try and protect your family. Um, egg donation does the process does that more, much more significantly than the process of sperm donation, um, just in terms of like how the eggs are removed from the body. But, you know, and then when it comes to anonymous donors, like there are kind of two main donor options at banks. One is that someone who that the the child could get in touch with or have the information for when they turn 18 and the other where they can't. And so a closed ID donor where they won't have that information in the future. And closed ID is pretty controversial because children tend to want to know where they came from in their genetic makeup. And also technology like 23andMe is going to make that a thing of the past. It's not currently a thing of the past because people gave sperm with the expectation that they would never be contacted. And so, and that sperm is cheaper than the mm -hmm. sperm where a donor is available to be contacted. So that's going to be a decision make that could be made for the next 10 years that maybe will fade out. But I do think there are some like, ethical considerations about um, how that would impact a, you know, a child long-term to not have access to that information. But there are reasons people want anonymous donation because they have fear around the relationship part or they don't want to navigate that or, you know, there's clarity. There's it's like easier to determine parentage. Um, it's a simpler process in many ways. And, you know, um, and it's also like we something that really like came through to me as we were writing the book is that, you know, we don't like when it comes to like, we don't have full reproductive justice for our families when it comes to queer people and single parents by choice because purchasing genetic material is prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not throughout the world. Like, it's very much an unregulated American thing. So, you know, like, some people may prefer to use a bank and also don't have that option because of cost. And so, you know, like, that's another part of us, like, not being able to, like, fully make decisions or having to, like, hack a system that isn't quite designed for us is, like, not being able to access the tools we need to create our families or in the way that we would prefer. Mm -hmm. I'll also add that because it's such a complex decision, we try to break it down for our readers and offer like literal exercises to get clear on your priorities and then pare those priorities down and then like reassess your options. And um, I think that's one of the decisions that can really like hold people up for years. Um, and I really encourage people to, you know, do your due diligence and figuring out your options and, and figure out those priorities and then sort of like make your choice and, and try not to like lose sight of the forest for the trees or whatever that expression is, because um, because it's just a part of the picture and many people make the decision and, and move forward. And it's not, you know, when you're parenting, you're 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 so you're so busy. You're so busy trying to chase after your kids and get them to not go pee on the floor or whatever when you're potty <laughs> training them. And you're not really thinking about that other half of their genetic material most of the time. Yeah. It can be a holdup and can feel like a very big decision, but there is also flexibility. Like, And something that we try and like share in the book through stories as well as our own writing is that like people choose one path and then switch paths. Mm -hmm. And that is okay. You know, you might think that you know, you like using a known donor is like the right path for you. And then a few months in be like, screw this. We got to do something different. And like, that's all right to like learn what your needs are through the process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ray, you said something that I felt like was just like so true about life was that because of the way the system's set up, we're often trying to like squeeze like a, a square peg into a round hole right like how do I rearrange this thing that just isn't made for me to like protect me or to protect my family I thought um, you talked a little bit about like different family structures right you talked briefly about um, poly families and how certain states um, recognize that but I was also interested in like um this kind of goes with like the the donor conversation as well as like, do you have experience or examples of like people like more than two people coming together to like parent a child, um, you know, like like a, a, a three or four parent situation to a child, especially in I think a non partner in a non partner situation uh, capacity, yeah. In my professional world, yes, yeah, you know, dip, I've had the privilege to witness and also support like different family formations of like friends coming together to parent or um, in poly situations, someone being like the primary parent and then their two partners being like somewhat involved, but not entirely like mm. our community is doing that. Um, but those are, it's kind of outside the like traditional framework. It's outside the legal framework. And so it's really like very ground up. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really like, yeah, I'm un unprotected in a way like to, to imagine anything that's more than like two people with like another person like, let, you know, let's say you um, you talk a lot about in the book that to protect your family, your donor is like, you know, you want to make sure that they're signing away right so that you're not in a situation later on. But then also like in a way that that if that donor person is involved in the kid's life, they're also not protected, right, if they are to, to sign away rights. And I thought that, like, it's just so complicated. Like, why does it have to be so complicated? I mean, yeah, we're, like, it's something we cover. We have a chapter about, like, kind of, like, legal as well as social mm -hmm. decision-making. And it's something that we have to think about from the get-go and forming our families. And I think probably with the exception of California, poly families don't really have protection in the U.S. And so there are, like some of the lawyers we talked to like did talk about some legal workarounds that people can write up. And also, yeah, it's, it's a scary thing that like our families don't have equal protection. And, you know, we are really big fans of donor contracts and second parent yeah. adoption because there continues to be case law. Like there's current case law that is happening where, um, 
non-gestational queer parents are losing parenting rights during divorces um or donors are like being forced to pay child support like there's just a lot of things that are still happening because we don't have systems that are designed around our needs if you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair. I am in conversation with Ray Ratchlin and Maria Goodman about their new book, Baby Making for Everybody. It's a book about uh, family building and fertility for LGBTQ plus parents as well as solo parents. This is a pre-recorded show, so we aren't taking calls during the hour. Um, but feel free if you ever have any questions to send them to T-A-L-K, that's talk, at W-O-R-T-F-M dot O-R-G. I am your substitute host, Jada Siri Ramos, and co-hosting with me today is my husband, Alex. Can we spend a little bit of time talking about like the the specific ways that people are able to have babies, right? So you you talk about um, in the book, you go through like like you mentioned, go through like the least invasive to the most invasive. So I I think it'd be nice to just like lay out like what is um, IUI versus IC. Um, yeah, can we like can, can we start with like the different options for um, having a baby without intercourse? Yeah, for sure. So um, specifically for people with uteruses who want to conceive, um, if you have a known donor, you can do it yourself at home um, using a menstrual cup or a syringe and um, Often people just put the semen as close to the cervix as possible um, and elevate your hips. Sometimes having an orgasm can help um, because it contracts the uterus and helps bring the sperm into the body. Um, that's the most DIY way that people usually do it. Um, you can also do something called an ICI, which is intracervical insemination, which is also... Um, relatively DIY, um, you 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 put the the sample into the cervix, but not into the uterus, which we'll talk about next. Um, so you're just making sure that you're getting the 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 semen like right into the cervix, which is it's best to get it as close to your uterus as possible. Um, then with IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, that needs to be done by a healthcare provider um, because it's a sterile procedure and you need, pre you need washed sperm. So when a person ejaculates, um, there's sperm in there, but there's also a lot of other stuff like mucus and um, basically like protective substances that help protect the sperm um, from the acidity of the vagina um, or whatever other word you want to use to refer to that part of your body. Um, so in an IUI, um, a provider will take the sperm that's mixed with some special sperm wash and just put it directly through the cervix and into the uterus. Um, and midwives do it at home. Um, doctors or midwives do it in fertility clinics. Um, it's, it's relatively a simple procedure. You just do need somebody who is a medical provider to be able to do it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily require extra hormones or anything like that. Um, people do um, medicated IUIs, especially under the care of a fertility doctor, um, where they take certain medications that encourage ovulation and then um, a trigger shot that help you time the ideal insemination timing. Um, then the next step from that is IVF, so in vitro fertilization, and that's where um, lab technicians at a fertility clinic and fertility doctors will take an egg and a sperm and combine them um, in a test tube, and then when the embryo forms, implant it into the uterus. Um, so that's kind of the most high-tech version of, of conception for people with uteruses. And the most expensive. And the most expensive. Um, yes. One thing I was, like, you know, keeping track of is you, you list, like, as of the time of this book being written, this is how much each of these things cost and the, the sort of range. Um, and you also talk about the um, the you know, percent chance that, th that this might work for like an average person. Um, I think two things that I really appreciated by that is that saying that, you know, this is 20%, 20% of the time that this is going to work for you really made it feel like, okay, like you can do it sometimes and like not get discouraged by the first time. Um, and also I think you mentioned a couple of times that a lot of the 
the stats that we know are for people who have fertility issues, which isn't necessarily true of a queer or solo person um, who's this is their first avenue to have a baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's challenging to find accurate data because most of the data we have related to fertility is focused on people who have been diagnosed with infertility. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how the IUI procedure was developed um, is for heterosexual people who are struggling to get pregnant. And so we try our best and Ray in particular is really great at translating that data as best as they can, you know, to our bodies. Um, and there are, there are some smaller studies coming out more recently about it, but it's um, definitely, there's some translation issue for sure. Yeah. Cause it's still, it's like um, queer people utilizing heterosexual protocols in fertility clinics and then being like, what's the success rate? And it's like, well, like, you know, like we, there's like a decision-making tree and also a kind of like an intervention tree that exists in um, a fertility clinic setting that like, it's just really unclear if it meets our needs or not. Mm. And some people will want that decision tree or that kind of like kind of step up every single, you know, like uh, intervention step up. And other people are like, but I just lack sperm. Like, why are we going to IVF after three tries? And like, it really... Yeah, it's just like the decision making is typically not like kind of like individual centered and it's based more on like what's appropriate for heterosexual people with infertility. It, so in part of the part of the book, you know, you, you talk about, um, you know, what happens if this doesn't work, specifically um, miscarriages um, and infertility. But I think one thing that, you know, makes me a little bit scared to try to have a pregnancy is how likely it is that I'm, you know, going to know if I have a miscarriage when that's not necessarily, um, you know, that that people who aren't being this intentional with having a baby might not notice or might not know if they have a, a very early miscarriage. Um, and I thought that, I mean, I, I just think that's, that's an important part of this conversation, right, is like there is loss and grief that also comes with uh, childs, trying to have a child as well. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big project. It's like, um, I think one of the reasons that I love this work is it just like feels very human. Um, I, I think when we try to create something that we really care about, like grief and loss is also there. Mm -hmm. And um, that's true in baby making and that's true in life. And it's like very, especially acute, I think during these reproductive years. Um, and I, yeah, it's like, it's part of it and it's a hard thing to talk about and a hard thing to go through. Um, and we felt really strongly about including that in the book too, because it's, it's part, it's part of, of the process of kind of opening yourself up to wanting to create a pregnancy and also the possibility of, of losing that pregnancy mm -hmm. is really heartbreaking um, and common. And we deserve to be in a culture where we can talk about it, where we can get support around it, where we can like grieve and heal and try again. And like, um, not have it be something that's like pushed away into a corner and and our culture in general is not great about talking about miscarriage and pregnancy loss for heterosexual people and it's like really 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 terrible about talking about it for queer and trans and solo parents yeah well we somehow made it to the end of this hour um, but before we go is there anything that I didn't touch on that you think is like incredibly important um, for our listener to know about this book or about um, this sort of family building? I think our hope with this book is that the next generation of queer people, this is common knowledge, mm -hmm. you know, um, right now, you know, there, there's, a lot of desire to like there's a lot of queer people there's a lot of solo parents there's a lot of desire to parent and like have build these like unique wonderful families that don't fit the current mold and there's not a lot of resources to do that and so we're hoping that this book is a stepping stone to getting more institutionalized resources to changing insurance coverage to like actually creating infrastructure change that makes books like this not necessary that 
um, a 16 year old who's coming out as trans will know their fertility options or like, you know, um, yeah, like young gay people will just like know, like if they want to have babies that that's on the table and like see other people do it and just like know their path, like their options and their pathway and kind of like my hope is that 20 years from now, like books like this aren't needed, but right now it's very much needed. And we're really grateful to like have a chance to like midwife our queer, our queer community and the so many solo parents to be. Ray, where can, where can people learn more about the book? Yeah, so we have a website, www.babymakingforeverybody.com, where you can learn about the book. And we're also, um, we have a blog going with um, different family formation stories and resources. We have like a donor contract that you can download and a template for asking for a known donor, um, a known egg or a sperm donor, um, and different things that we'll be updating, you know, ongoingly. And then you can also find... Um, each of us on Instagram, I'm at restore underscore midwifery and Ray is at refuge midwifery. Um, you can also check out my online community, which is at pregnanttogether.com. And where else, Ray? Um, the book also has an Instagram baby making for everybody. Um, we are doing like local events, um, I know it's a pre-recorded, like I'm, you know, speaking at the local LGBTQ center in Philly um, this week. And we're excited to kind of be traveling around our regions to talk to queer people and solo parents to be about how to build their families. So if you want to like bring us to like your bookstore or your queer community center, you can DM us. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we just want to continue to be a resource to and help help our families grow and thrive. Uh, just to, I, I'll have to plug it at our, our local bookstore, but I was reading this book. I was prepping for this interview in line. Um, our local bookstore brought, um, uh, oh, wow. Elliot Page. Thank you. They brought Elliot Page to, to uh, premiere his book and to do a talk. And I was reading it in line, which there was like a line around the block and like probably seven people were like, what are you reading? And I was like, I'll, I'll give it to you afterwards. Street team. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, I really, I want to thank you both for making the time to be with us today. And then I also um, want to, you know, thank you for writing this book for us. I mean, not for us, but for us. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's a joy that this was the first fertility book that I picked up and, um, you know, I, that I didn't have to do the jumps and loops and hoops um, to... To make a book fit for me so I appreciate that um, I so have fun. yeah I've been your host Jada Siri Ramos my co-host today has been my husband Alex Ash soon to be Alex Siri Ramos everyone wait for the paperwork and uh, I would like to thank the team that made this happen our news director Shelly Pittman and it is one o'clock you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison up next is letters and politics in the night, attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airways from unknown positions.